Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Two weeks ago we looked at this commandment uh, for the first time and then I took a vacation to try to meditate on the theme of rest, and uh, back now, and eager to dig into this with you, and Zari mentioned our intention is not to stay in this passage this morning, but we'll do a bit of a Bible study, and so in a number of ways, this will uh, look a little bit different than a normal sermon, will be more of a Bible study as we unpack a number of passages, and so as we go to them, I invite you to just have your Bible open and turn with them, turn there uh, with me. Uh, The privilege of getting to look into God's Word is always a glorious one, because it is in His Word that we hear Him speak, through which He reveals Himself to us. And as He reveals Himself to us, we see His different attributes, and some of them might cause us to turn in fear at His holiness and His purity, His righteousness. Some things that God speaks to us are so wonderful that they leave our minds boggled. How can we even conceive of a being who has no beginning nor ending, one who has always existed and from whom all things proceed? It's impossible to really wrap our minds around us, and so sometimes when we come to His perfections, they leave us staggering for words. Some other portions are so lovely and wonderful that to catch a sight of them is to leave us in the awe of God's goodness and grace and benevolence to us. And I think that this theme of rest that is brought out to us in this fourth commandment is one of those moments in Scripture that is so wonderful to us because it reveals the goodness of God to us. And that's really the theme that I want to try to draw out through a number of scriptures, that theme of rest and of God's goodness to us and giving it to us. Israel as a nation was given the fourth commandment to keep one day, the seventh day, as a day set apart and holy unto the Lord. On that day, as is very clear, they were to do no work, and that means they were to do no money-making work, no routine work even within their homes. It was to be a day that was distinct for them. And in this, it was a blessing enough because they would experience a day off once a week and experience that kind of rest, but it was more than just rest for them one day. This idea of rest extends beyond that. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 31. Exodus 31, verse 13. The Lord is giving Moses instructions about what to tell the people of Israel. And he says, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, 
You shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. This keeping the seventh day holy and set apart to the Lord served as a sign. It functioned as a as an indicator of something else, in that something else it indicated was that it was the Lord himself who sanctifies the people of Israel, that is to set them apart as distinct from all other people. This seventh day that they kept regularly every week was to point out to them and really to the whole world that Yahweh was their God, the God who created the whole world in six days and ceased from his labor on the seventh was Israel's God, and to represent that, he gave them this Sabbath that they were to keep and set apart, and it was a sign of the relationship that they had with this God. In Ezekiel chapter 20, the similar language is used. At this point, however, Israel is in exile. They failed to keep the commandments of God. They've sinned. They've broken His ways. And in Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 12, God describes to them what's happened. Moreover, I gave them my Sabbaths as a sign between me and them, that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. Israel, again, is given the Sabbath as a sign, an indicator of the relationship that they had with their God. And so every seventh day, the last day of the week, was to be a day that Israel ceased to do their normal course of work. And it was a sign between them and God, and it also functioned as a gift from God to them. As Jesus says in Mark 2.27, the Sabbath was made for man. This was to... Show to Israel and to show to the nations what a good and kind God they had who would give them a day that was set apart from the others where they can cease from their normal course of work and focus on their God. This was such a serious responsibility for Israel. Although it was a gift, it was also a serious responsibility for them that a blatant Disregard in breaking the Sabbath was effectively saying, we don't want your gift of rest. And the result was to be punishable by death. It was so serious that as Israel rejected God's Sabbaths and didn't keep them, Israel as a nation faced exile from the land of promise, due in part to the fact that they did not keep God's Sabbaths. But the idea of just one day or the seventh day being a day of rest doesn't totally encompass the idea of rest that God intends to give. As Ezekiel says, you did not keep my Sabbaths, plural. Leviticus chapter 23 is a a chapter of instruction to Israel that describes the feasts that they were to keep. 
Israel's calendar throughout the year was to be marked by these feasts that God gave them. But as the kind of the datum point, or the mark by which all those other feasts are regarded, is the Sabbath. They had a number of feasts. In Leviticus chapter 3, verse 4, it's the feast of the Passover. In verse 9, it's the feast of the first fruits. Verse 15, it's the feast of weeks. Verse 23, it's the feast of trumpets. Verse 26, the day of atonement. Verse 33, it's the feast of booths. And Israel had integrated into their whole life this uh, recurring element of feasts, of celebrations, of vacations in a sense. And this was God's gift to them. As any of you know, as soon as you have your day off and you have to then get back to your regular course of work, you know that that one day off just didn't seem like quite enough. You want the next one to come. And Israel was given by God this wonderful gift of in their calendar year, these times where they come to celebrate and remember God's goodness to them, to have a a distinct moment in their life of celebration and almost vacation that's built into it. And at the beginning of this chapter, chapter 23, the thing that kicks it all off, kind of the, the, the representation of all of those other feasts in a sense, is the Sabbath day, verse 3 of Leviticus 23, is six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation, You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. So Israel had built into their life a weekly reminder of the rest that God gives. And into their year was built into their calendar a reminder of the rest that God gives. And so you get a picture that the rest that he gives is is more comprehensive than just one day off from physical labors. He worked into their calendar more than that. But it extends even further because in chapter 25 of Leviticus, we're told about another kind of Sabbath. It's a Sabbath year. In verse 20, or chapter 25, verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years you shall sow your field And for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in fruits. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land. A Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. Every seven years the land was to get a break. And effectively the farmers as well because they're not going to sow and reap. And so God built in not just a weekly reminder... And not just annually, but every seven years came this exceptional Sabbath where the land got rest and farmers got rest. And it extends even further because it, right following this description is verse 8, the year of Jubilee. It says, you shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land, and you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. 
When each of you shall return to his property, and each of you shall return to his clan, that fiftieth year shall be a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself, nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines. For it is a jubilee, it shall be holy to you. And it goes on that property gets returned to property owners, slaves are set free. Every fiftieth year there's a sense of another indicator of God's goodness and giving rest to his people. And so you see there's this comprehensiveness to the rest God gives once a week, the seventh day. Throughout the year, these feasts that they keep in celebration of the goodness of God. Every seventh year, a year off for the land. Every 50th year, a year off for the land. Restoration of property, the freeing of slaves. Can you imagine living in a society like that? It sounds delightful. And who is the one who gave it to them? It is the God who created the world in six days and on the seventh he ceased from his labors, blessed what he had created, blessed that day and called it holy and extends that rest to those people who belong to him so they can enjoy the God who gives rest. And so this concept of the rest that God brings or gives, the ceasing and completion of something was bound up in Israel's culture. Culture is really a gift to them. It would be delightful for that nation to experience all of those gifts. It was really His Sabbath rest and His blessing being shared with them. The concept of rest in the Old Testament extends beyond this day, the year, the holidays, and the 50th year. It's bigger. It's actually even more comprehensive than that. It was meant, the rest that God gives, was meant to picture the fulfillment of God's promises in the lives of his people. The rest that they experienced on that weekly basis and on the, throughout the year and on an annual basis was to also help them understand that the kind of God that gives them that rest is the God who finishes what he begins, who is good and kind and blesses for Israel. The rest that they would be given by God so dripping by blessings that it would saturate the whole of their lives. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 8 is a message that Moses is giving to the people of Israel after they've been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. They've been nomads, effectively, sojourners, living in tents, not having a place to call their own home. They're on the brink of getting to go into the land of Canaan. And Moses tells them in chapter 12 of Deuteronomy, verse 8, You shall not do according to all that we are doing here today, everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes. For you have not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you. But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, Then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. There you shall bring all that I command you, 
your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. Did you notice that? God is promising them the land of Canaan after being wanderers of the wilderness for 40 years. They're finally going to get a solid place where they can set up home. And God calls it a place of rest. He also calls it an inheritance. An inheritance is a gift from God to His people. And as they come into this inheritance, this rest, the fuller blessings that come with that are described here. Certainly it's a gift, and certainly to live in the land itself is a gift, but the gift extends to rest from their enemies. They're not going to have to, as they have experienced in the wilderness, wonder if they're going to get attacked, or as they go into the land and conquer it and they finally settle it, they can lay down their swords and finally breathe freely, knowing that God has protected them from their enemies. They get to live in the land in a life of safety, a life of protection brought about by the goodness of their God. No matter how comfortable your bed is, if you have enemies surrounding your bed, you're probably not going to get a good night's rest. But God brings them into the land and promises protection from the enemies. This is an element of rest as they live a life of safety. But best of all, is the fact that God will appoint a place in their land, it will be Jerusalem, and he is going to make his name dwell there. And it will be the locus of their life, the place where they go for worship, where they offer their sacrifices and give their praise. And so the rest that God gives in the land will be culminated by worship that they get to experience as God dwells among his people. The kind of life that was to be theirs was not just a life that experienced rest one day a week. It was a whole life of God giving his blessing to them, and all of it encompassed the idea of rest, rest from enemies, protection, safety, the presence of God, the delight of worship. Psalm 132 gives us some more insight into the kind of rest that Israel would experience or had the potential to experience. Psalm 132 is a song of ascents. It was a a song of praise that Israel would give as um, people went up to Jerusalem for worship. And this psalm describes how God is going to be faithful to his promise to David, King David the greatest of Israel's kings and the king to whom God gave a promise that David would have a son from his line who would sit on his throne forever. And as these pilgrims go up to Jerusalem and sing the praises of God, they say in verse 7, let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place. You and the ark of your might. These singers are calling on God to go to his temple, to dwell there, what's called his resting place. A reflection of the fact that God will be there, he will be present. And from his resting place can flow out all sorts of blessings and rest that Israel can experience. 
It goes on in verse 9, let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell. For I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests will, I will clothe with salvation. And her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame. But on him his crown will shine. You see the full orb nature of the kind of rest God intends to give to his people when he dwells among them in his resting place. You see, the rest that they would experience is all flowing from him. It's a reflection of the kind of God that he is. And they would experience a place of abundant provisions. The poor would be satisfied with bread, priests clothed with salvation, saints shouting for joy. They would have a king of the line of David And the enemies of that king would be shamed and that crown on that king's head would shine in glory. What an amazing blessing God, Israel, had. And all of this is encompassed in the idea of the kind of rest that God intended to give his people. Much more than just one day. A whole life dominated by rest. Not laziness, but true rest. But if you know much about the Old Testament, you know Israel did not experience this kind of rest. Maybe in snippets, maybe once a week, maybe those occasional festivals, but the full orb nature of the rest that God intended to give to Israel was not received that blessing received by faith they did not take. Ezekiel 22, 8. The Lord indicts Israel. You have despised my holy things and profaned my Sabbaths. They despised the very rest that God designed to give them. And as we all do, we replace the promises of God with our own conjures, conjuring of what would be good for us, what would be more restful, what would be better. We replace God with an idol, and with that we lose all rest. And the failure was so serious, not only because they failed to enjoy the blessings from God that were theirs through promise, but because in doing so, they failed also to display the manifold goodness of the God who made a sign with them of that Sabbath day that would reflect the kind of God that was theirs. The creator God who ceased from his work on the seventh day and offered the rest that he possessed to others. Notice God calls it my Sabbaths. They're his. And he shares them with his people. And his people rejected it. And so the world really was left without any kind of faithful representation 
of the true goodness and nature of God when Israel failed to keep the Sabbath that they were given. They didn't show what a good, kind, loving, wise God He is. Israel was kicked out of the land. They went into exile. Seventy years after, God in His mercy and in fulfillment of His promise, He started to bring them back into the land. It was a hard time for Israel. They had enemies surrounding them, opposing the work that they were doing. It was not really a time of rest. It was a time of vigilance. And you come to the beginning of the New Testament, and again, if you know this background of that, you would know that Israel is far from anything restful. They're oppressed by the Romans. And not only that, they have a a religious system that has risen up, dominated by teachers who consider themselves experts in the law and have tried to incorporate the Sabbath back into the culture of Israel again. These are the Pharisees. And they don't want to fail in keeping the Sabbath, and so they generate a number of additional laws that Israel needs to keep in order to obey the Sabbath. And it became almost this laughable charade as the people of Israel are burdened with the weight of the laws that the Pharisees design for them to keep the Sabbath. You can read about these if you just look online. There's a Mishnah Shabbat that you can look up. It's rabbinical teaching on how the Sabbath was to be kept. And let me just read you a couple for what it was supposed to look like in the, in the daily life of someone around Jesus' time and how they kept the Sabbath. It says, quote, One who stores a seed for sowing or as a sample or for medicinal purposes and carried it out on Shabbat is liable for carrying out any amount. By storing that measure, he indicates that it is significant to him. Therefore, he is liable for carrying it. If you carry out something from your house and you have a packet of seeds on you, or if you have some medicine on you, you show by the very fact that you have it that it's important to you, and therefore you have broken the Sabbath, whether or not you've done anything with it. Another one says, one who carries out food from his house on Shabbat and placed it on the threshold of the door, whether he then carried it out from the threshold into the public domain or another person carried it out, he was exempt because he did not perform his prohibited labor of carrying from domain to domain all at once. Similarly, if one placed a basket that is full of fruit on the outer threshold, which is in the public domain, and part of the basket remained inside, even though most of the fruit is outside in the public domain, he is exempt until he carries out the entire basket. So if you put a basket of fruit halfway out your door, that's okay. But if it goes all the way out, that's not okay. And you think of these things, think, how is that restful? It'd be so exhausting. The day of rest would become a day a burden. What can I do? What can I do? How far can I put the basket out? Was it three quarters or one half? And it becomes impossible to keep. 
And the sign that was meant to represent the kind of God Israel had, a God of goodness and grace, a God who from His rest gives us rest, a full-orbed kind of rest, was now being represented by these teachings that made God look like a monster who doesn't give rest at all. And the world is now being reflected to, get to them that God is a despot whom you cannot possibly please. This was the environment of New Testament Israel. Well, along comes this guy from Nazareth. Nazareth. His name's Jesus. And he kind of stirs things up regarding the Sabbath. He's not a controversialist. He just happens to be the Lord of the Sabbath who knows how it is meant to be kept. If you know anything about the interactions Jesus has with the Pharisees about the Sabbath, you know it's kind of a fiery show. But I want to look at a passage in Matthew chapter 11 that will help us understand Jesus' view of rest. But let me set it up for a moment. Matthew 11, verse 20, Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Jesus had been going from place to place, displaying his power, and when he went to certain cities, they thought nothing of it. And so in verse 21, Jesus says, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Jesus speaks harshly against these people who did not accept him for who he is, the king who is bringing the message of the kingdom and the power of the kingdom to bear. And then, verse 25, Jesus begins to pray. And he says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding. Jesus is referring to the reality of him as king and the nature of the kingdom that he brings. And certain people are are hidden from seeing that. And Jesus staggeringly says, I thank you, Father, That you have hidden these things. He's concealed them. That's worth chewing on for a while. The people that they've been hidden from, Jesus describes as the wise and understanding. These are the people who are independent from God and think they have nothing they need to learn from Him. Jesus is God incarnate. And when Jesus teaches, these are the people who think, I don't need that. And they see what he's doing and they think, I don't need that. That's the wise and the understanding. But Jesus goes on to thank his Father, the Lord of heaven and earth, not only that he's hidden these things, but that he has revealed them. To who? Little children. Little children are those who love to be taught by Jesus, who have great need and learn from him. 
Jesus praises his Father for his gracious will in concealing and revealing. And in verse 27, Jesus makes another staggering statement. He says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Jesus takes on his shoulders the very responsibility and authority to reveal the Father to whoever he wants. Israel had failed to keep the sign of the covenant to show the kind of God that God actually is. Now here Jesus is, the one through whom there is exclusive knowledge of God. And it only comes to whom the Son chooses to reveal the Father to. Who is it that Jesus reveals the Father to? Verse 28, the prayer has ended and now Jesus issues a call and he says, Come to me, all who, are labor, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Haven't we seen that God designed to welcome Israel into his rest, the blessings of his dwelling place? to let those flow out from him into their life. And now we see that the exclusive agent of the revelation of God is Jesus Christ. And what does he reveal? What does he issue a call to come and experience? He issues a call to come and experience in him rest. Jesus, the exclusive one who reveals who the Father is and what He is like reveals to those who come to Him that He is one who gives rest. He says, Come to Me, all who labor and are heavy laden. Labor means toil. It's those who engage in fatiguing activity. It's used literally in the New Testament elsewhere of doing exhausting manual labor. To be heavy laden is to carry a burden, which is what is precisely forbidden on the Sabbath, by the way. In Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 21, thus says the Lord, take care for the sake of your lives and do not bear a burden on the Sabbath day or bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem. And here you have Jesus, the one who reveals the Father, saying, come to me those who are carrying a burden. Isn't it wonderful that the God who gave the Sabbath to Israel and says, don't carry a burden on the Sabbath, Jesus says to those who are carrying a burden, come to me and find rest. The same God of the Old Testament is the same God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are the same. But Jesus isn't really just speaking about what people do or don't do or are to do or aren't to do on the Sabbath day, the seventh day. He is speaking about those whose lives are perpetually marked by fatiguing activity and those who are likened to carrying a heavy load on their back. 
It's ongoing. These are present participles. Those who labor, those who are heavy laden, it keeps on going. And we know that Jesus isn't referring to those who are just physically exhausted, although certainly it can include that. But we know that he's referring to more because he says, Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for what? For your souls. He's talking about those who are fatigued in soul, those who are burdened in soul. I get the occasional opportunity to preach at the Capital City Rescue Mission, and I preached this past Friday there. It's quite a sight to look out at those men and those women who are devastatingly burdened by the afflictions in their life, many of which that have come about through sinful decisions. And they experience the burden and the agony of homelessness, of addiction, of inability to break a commitment to an object, some sin. You can see in the way that their bodies are just physically crumpled up, the weight of the ruined relationships in their life, the weight of the burdens that they are carrying. Those are the kind of people... Those are the kind of experiences that Jesus is speaking about. And before we think that's just them, we ought to know the burden that comes on our own soul, our own heart, the unimaginable weight of guilt for sin committed and shame that comes with that. The weariness of broken relationships. There's the toil of life and the difficulty of making decisions. Come to me, Jesus says, and I will give you rest. This also certainly applies to those who have been sitting under the teaching of the Pharisees who tie up heavy burdens and lay them on the shoulders of the people, making them keep burdens that they could not bear. This is what false teachers do. They set out expectations and demands that make God look like a monster instead of make him look like the gracious and good and kind God who gives rest? Well, how does Jesus give this rest? He says in verse 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Have you ever seen a yoke? Not an egg yoke, but one of those wooden bars that goes over the shoulders of oxen that links them together and that they have to pull when they're plowing, helping with other work, pulling a cart. And you think, wait a minute, a yoke doesn't sound very restful. I don't want a big slab of wood over my shoulders. That just sounds like another burden. It says, learn from me. We have to go and be a learner. A disciple with him as our teacher, that could be burdensome. But here's why it's not it's because of who the teacher is and whose yoke it belongs to. Who is it? It's the one who is gentle and lowly in heart. This is the one who calls us to come to him and find rest because his yoke is easy 
and his burden is light. And it's not the kind of yoke that adds a burden. It's the kind of yoke that relieves it. It's not the kind of teaching that heaps up things that demean you. It's the kind of teaching that sets you free. He's calling those who are heavy of soul to come to him and learn from him. This is wonderful news because Jesus says that he is gentle and lowly. And it's not a charade. It's not just some appearance of those things. As we know, some people look like they may be humble or lowly, but when you get to know them, they're actually proud and arrogant. It's not that at all because Jesus is gentle and lowly in heart. It's who he is to his core. His very nature, he is one who is gentle and humble. I'm not particularly good at um, sermon titles. Today's sermon is um, captivatingly called The Fourth Commandment, Part Two. It should stir up your souls. But I do have one sermon title that I like, that I've used, not because I'm impressed with it or because I think it's witty, but just because it's true. It's preaching on Mark chapter 10, the story of Jesus when the little children are coming to him and the disciples keep him away. And the title of the message was, The King Who Welcomes Children. And I like it simply because it's a description of what happens in that moment. King Jesus, the high and mighty, the creator and sustainer of the universe, the one who at the breath of his mouth could obliterate everything in his path, takes the moment when the children are brought to him to welcome them into his presence and to tell his disciples, don't keep them away from me, don't hinder them, let the little children come to me. And if that isn't a picture of humility, I don't know what is. This is the king who rides on a donkey in Matthew 21, 5. Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey. In his heart, this is who he is. The one who has all power and yet uses his power for the good of his people to grant them rest. The one who reveals the Father to us is exactly like him. The God who gives rest. Have you tasted this kind of rest from Him? Have you experienced it? The goodness of our Savior, who when you come to Him to learn from Him, not as the high and mighty, not as the wise and learned, but as the lowly, as the child comes to Him, Do you know his rest? Do you know what that's like? Do you know how good and comprehensive it is? How fully orbed it is? How it touches every part of your life? Have you come to him who says to those who need forgiveness, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven? Do you know what it's like to come to him? Who says to those who need someone they can trust, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well? Do you know what it's like to come to him who says to those who know their own poverty, 
Blessed are the poor in spirit. Do you know what it's like to come to him who says to those who know their need, ask and it will be given to you? Do you know what it's like to come to him who says to those who don't know which way to go, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on a rock? Do you know what it's like to come to him who says to those who are worried about tomorrow, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Do you know what it's like to come to the one who says to those who are scared, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Do you know what it's like to come to the one who says to those who are sinners and need a friend of sinners, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick? Do you know what it's like To come to the one who says to those who are wondering if anyone really cares about them, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. And you know the one who says to those who need a perfect sacrifice, for the forgiveness of their sins. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the one who calls, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. A comprehensive, good, Lovely rest for your souls. Just like his father. Isn't this Sabbath rest at its core? Jesus Christ is the one who gives it, the one who offers it. Come to him, know him, trust him, know that rest. Let's pray. Father, we give you Thanks for giving such a wonderful Savior who grants such wonderful rest. Oh Lord, we know it in part. We look forward to that day when we're fully known, when we know fully, even as we're fully known. What a glorious day that will be. Help us, Father, to strive to enter that rest. And even now to enjoy and experience that rest that is in Christ Jesus. Rest for our souls. We thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.